0: Yes, my name is Mark Youngman. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence Church. And I just want to say to you, happy Palm Sunday. (laughs) And I want to invite you to pray with me as we continue on this morning. Let's pray together. Oh, God, you are our king. You rule over our hearts. You are the king above all kings, and we know a lot of kings. You are the mighty one, the holy one the king and the ruler of our hearts and our lives. So God, would you come and rule over this space wherever we are as we worship right now? Would you come and would you rule over our nation? Would you come and would you rule over Boulder, Colorado, Atlanta, Georgia, and every place and space where it seems like evil is reigning? God, would you reign in each of those places? And we would be able to see your kingdom coming, taking root in the hearts and lives of people all over the place. So it would be undeniable who the true king is. We turn to you, God. We turn to you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Real quick, guys, I want to remind you that we have our Easter services coming up in one week. Next weekend is Easter weekend, and we have some great opportunities for you to worship both online or you can also join us here in person in one of our drive-in services. We've got two on Saturday evening, two on Sunday morning, and you can sign up for those. uh, Save a spot on our website. We would love to have you come and be a part of the celebration of resurrection next weekend. You do not want to miss it, so we hope to see you there. All right, we're going to start off this morning by getting into God's Word. This is the prophet Zechariah uh, speaking to God's people From chapter 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let me ask you, when was the last time you saw a miracle? Like today, last week, three years ago, do you just did you have a miracle in mind? Well, here's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that by the end of our few moments together, as we, we share together today, you'll be able to say it was really recently. I can remember the last time I saw a miracle. Not not because of how uh, amazing uh, this sermon is, um, but because we are all aware of what we have already seen, the miracles that are all around us. So for the last several weeks, we've been learning about what it means to break open to God instead of breaking down in a way that leaves us feeling hopeless. We've learned that breaking down can be the result of a season of great stress, of, of loneliness, feelings of of, of hopelessness, loss of control, loss of purpose, loss of connection, you know, all things that we have experienced in abundance in the last year. But when we break open to God, as we've seen in this series the last several weeks, it can lead to healing, it can lead to forgiveness, it can even lead to holiness, to becoming more and more like Jesus, a brand new life in him. However, a breaking open to God and I think this is important, cannot be manufactured. It's not something that we can just kind of tool together and put together on our own. It actually has more to do with surrendering to God, and we've heard that uh, in this series as well. In fact, trying to manufacture healing and holiness leads us deeper into a broken down state. And it's exhausting because we can't do it on our own. You've probably noticed this. When a person is, is in the midst of a breakdown, they behave in ways they wouldn't have ordinarily behaved, right? That's kind of something that we can see, some signs of that. Something I've noticed is how, how stress can actually move us to take the reins. And it kind of makes sense, really. You know, like if you're in the car and you're, you're going off the road, you're going to grab the steering wheel, right? You probably should have had your hands on it to begin with. You're going to hold on to it and you're going to try to steer back on course. That, that makes sense. Someone has to do it. If we sense that things are going off track, we clench, right, and we grasp harder to our control, and we hunker down, and we try to manipulate our current reality into something that is better for us. I think all of that actually makes sense. But of all the things that we can manipulate for our own favor, God is not one of them. God cannot be manipulated, and that's okay. You know why? Why? Because God is already for us. God is already on our side. Now, as I started off by saying this is Palm Sunday, and we'll kind of get into the story here in just a little bit, but I want to go back to those verses that I shared with you just a moment ago. These are words from a prophet 500 years before Palm Sunday, five centuries before the day that we're celebrating today. And he said, rejoice, people of God. See, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble, and riding on a donkey. I love the juxtaposition of these two lines. I feel like like the gospel is actually contained in these two lines, that, that God comes to us, the creator of the universe, is triumphant and victorious, and he comes to us humble and on a donkey. What kind of a king is this, right? We're already asking the question, and in these lines, God was preparing the way for a big miracle. Like, just wait. Like, we are headed for a straight-up miracle. It is on the way. See, when I went to, to school to prepare to become a pastor, I honestly, I hesitated. I did. I, I, I really felt pretty certain about this call that God had on my life, but there was something about being a preacher that I didn't like. <laughs> Let me explain that to you. See, I have a, a high sensitivity to manipulation, I really feel like I can tell when somebody's trying to to trick me or pull one over on me, right? And, and so I could trace this this kind of hesitancy I have back to several sources, but but there was this one standout time when I actually I, I led a, a, a group of youth from Chicago to the island of Puerto Rico. We were doing some mission work on the island. We were serving in a church in the mountains. We were doing some work around the church, and the pastor came in at the end of the day, and he he began to to speak, and we had a translator there for us, and. He was just kind of speaking to each person about what he saw in each person, and there were some sweet moments, and there were some weird moments, and, and then he began to speak in Spanish to our Spanish-speaking youth in the, in the youth group, and I, I took a couple of years of Spanish, but I don't speak Spanish, and so um, I didn't know what was happening, but I just saw them. I could see them. They were they were actually, like, breaking down in front of my eyes, and I didn't like it. I spoke to them later, and we spent we spent days just kind of recovering from what had been spoken to them that was hurtful. It was breaking them down. I did not want to be a part of that kind of thing. I saw preachers, you know, using people's emotions and using fear and guilt to make them respond, and I just didn't like it. it just, this is just me. It just didn't feel right to me. It didn't feel genuine. And sometimes I would actually even see a preacher manufacture a miracle. But miracles come from God. And as I said, God cannot be manipulated now, there are a bunch of stories in the Bible where characters use manipulation to get their way. Uh, the snake, for instance, in the garden manipulated Adam and Eve into believing that God didn't, wasn't really on their side. Jacob manipulated his father and tricked him into getting his brother's birthright. Joseph's brothers manipulated the evidence so their father would believe that he was actually dead. David manipulated the rules of war to cover up his own sin. Manipulation, if you will, is kind of a family tradition. <laughs> it, didn't, it wasn't invented by, by pastors in the, the 20th century. It, it goes all the way back. Well, there was a time long before Jesus when God's people were slaves in the nation of Egypt. They had been there for, for several uh, generations And they began to cry out to God in their state. They they wanted freedom. And God heard their cries for freedom. And God wanted their freedom, just like he wants our freedom. But God had some work to do in the heart of Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. And so he kind of started out on this path of of working several uh, miracles in the midst of the people to begin to move them towards, towards freedom. So what he did was he went to Moses and his brother Aaron, and he said, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell them that God wants you to let his people go. I don't know if you can imagine that assignment, but Moses and Aaron, they go and they say, "God, our God wants you to let his people go. Now, Pharaoh was actually a pretty smart person, and he knew that their economy was like heavily based on the enslavement of these people, and so he couldn't just let them go, and so his heart remained hardened, and he said, no, I will not let you go. And so God, God had this, this first miracle that he, that he was going to perform, and he said, uh, Aaron, you throw your stick down on the ground, and I will turn it into a snake. So Aaron threw his stick on the ground, and it turned into a snake, and people standing around were kind of amazed. It's not something they had seen before. But Pharaoh actually had a lot of wise men and magicians who were on his side, and, and they could manipulate what was happening around them and make it look like they were doing the exact same thing. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not let God's people go. So again, God uses Moses and Aaron and says, go to Pharaoh, tell them, my God says, let my people go. He wouldn't do it. So this time, the miracle that God performs is he turns the water of the Nile River, mighty Nile River, into blood. Blood. Is that dramatic? Yeah, it's pretty dramatic on God's part. But Pharaoh's guys were able to manipulate the scene and make the same thing happen. I don't know how they separated God's miracles from their trick, but somehow they were able to do it as well. And so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not let God's people go. So the story, as you might be picking up on, continues. And this time, God says, I'm going to fill the land with frogs. That's right, frogs. Like, out of the river, out of ponds, out of all over the place, frogs, we were swarming into the land. And, you know, one or two frogs is not a big deal, but tons and tons of frogs all over the place is uh, kind of noticeable. (laughs) And so Pharaoh's guys were actually uh, able to do the same thing. So there were even more frogs. So what do you have now? You have way too many frogs in the land of Egypt. And so at this moment, something really important happens. Pharaoh actually goes to Moses, and he begs him to pray to his God to get rid of the frogs. So what does that mean? That means that Pharaoh is actually saying, there's something about this God who can do something about my situation right now. So would you pray to him? And for some reason, they set the date of when the frog thing would end to be the next day. So the next day, God get, kills all, all the frogs. They're all dead, but they're still there and they're piled up in heaps all over the land. And, and you can just kind of imagine if you want to, how much that stinks in, in the land. And they're still having to, to deal with these With these frogs, so so far we've seen three miracles and three acts of manipulation to kind of counter them. So you're wondering, right? What's God going to do next? Surely God's going to up his game, like balls of fire from the sky or something like like that, right? Or does the sun is the sun just going to go dark, or or will the mighty great pyramids of Egypt just crumble into heaps on the ground? Those all would have been good options for God. But no, God chose gnats. That's right, like gnats, like 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 fruit flies. You know, in my kitchen, if there's a couple of fruit flies flying around the fruit that's sitting there, it drives me crazy. They had gnats, fruit flies all over the place. Like you couldn't breathe without inhaling gnats into your. Is that graphic enough for you? Into your into your lungs. This is what was happening to them. And here's what I love. So this is the miracle that God performs. That all of a sudden, Pharaoh's people who can do anything, these wise men are like, "Mm -mm." (laughs) mm-mm, I can turn water into blood, sure. But gnats, frogs I can do, gnats, I cannot do the gnats. And what they actually said in that moment is that this is the finger of God. Gnats, gnats were the proof that God was who they said he was. (laughs) But still, Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not let God's people go. So it actually took a whole series of these miracles, and you can look at them in in Exodus as well and just kind of walk through all those. There's, There's a whole series of them that God performs, but the last one, the last one is kind of harsh. God actually instructs his people to mark their doorposts with the blood of a lamb so that this last miracle, this last plague, would pass over their homes and their lives would be saved. So God's people did it. They took the blood of a lamb, they put it on their doorposts, and this plague passed over their homes and their lives were saved. It was such a dramatic event for them that they actually formed this yearly festival, which actually still goes on today, called the Passover, in which they remember this story. They remember how God had saved them in this time. So why do they still talk about it? Because it was actually setting the stage for an even bigger miracle. Miracle. God, in this moment, was preparing the way through Moses to perform a miraculous breakthrough of the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea, where, that would bring freedom to the enslaved people of God and move them on towards the promised land. All right, I've given you a lot here. So what does this have to do with Palm Sunday? Great question. I'm glad that you, you asked. On Palm Sunday, Jesus actually rode into Jerusalem and was met by a large crowd of people, as we'll see who were gathered there for a feast, for a festival, the Passover. They were gathered in Jerusalem for the the Passover. And as I just said, and I'll say it again, this was the feast to remember that God allowed the final plague in Egypt to pass over their homes and to help lead them to freedom. They would sit around at this feast, at this festival. They would sit around meals, and they would tell the story over and over again. Because stories of freedom and salvation are worth telling over and over again. You might have a story of salvation and freedom that's worth telling. I can tell you that just in this last week, I experienced some freedom from God, from something that had really been weighing me down. And so I've got this story now to begin to tell and to form and I hope to tell it over and over again about God's salvation and freedom that is offered to me. So what Jesus was walking into on Palm Sunday was a big occasion. And Jesus could have manipulated his entrance into Jerusalem on that day. It would have been really easy. Like, everything was heightened, you know? The attention was on on him, and he could have really ruled the day. We wouldn't blame him if he had come in on a big horse. The other rulers of his day, they were doing that kind of thing. And, you know, actually, when you get up in front of a crowd— you can kind of get a little bit ahead of yourself. Um, I don't know if you know that's true, but it it is. You can believe that you're actually in control, but what can actually happen is you'll say something goofy like, gnat's or something like that, and you're in the middle of of your talk, and you believe that you're something great. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the Roman rulers were feeling the swell of energy that was building up around the festival where people from all over the world were gathering. So this is kind of what we do. We take advantage of the occasion to make ourselves look stronger, more powerful, and more successful than we really are. But remember this. Your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious as he, humble and riding on a donkey. Probably at some point, if this is a new story for you, um, you might be asking, kings don't ride on donkeys, Right. So what is happening here? Why is this king riding on a donkey? As a college kid, I was able to travel to St. Petersburg, Russia, and one, one moment I remember standing under the statue of, of Peter the Great, this great czar of Russia. And Peter the Great was on a horse, the statue, he was on a, on a horse, and it was this great big stallion, and it was rearing back with its front hooves off the ground, and its back hooves were stepping on a serpent. And the statue was on top of this huge, huge rock, right in the middle of this beautiful square. It was memorable to me. And when we left there, we went to like five other cities in Russia and Eastern Europe, and every single one of them had a similar statue with a mighty man on a mighty horse right in the middle of the square. Because kings ride on horses, not donkeys so what's going on here? Like, what is different about this king that Zechariah was, was prophesying about? Now, most of the time, when you're reading the scripture and you ask a question, hey, what's going on here? What is, what's happening in the middle of this? You're probably in a good spot because that means that something big may be about to happen, maybe even a revelation that takes you deeper into understanding about who God is and how God relates to you. So for us, this deeper understanding comes from the prophecy when the prophecy of Zechariah is fulfilled in John chapter 12. We're finally there, the Palm Sunday story. Here it is from, from John chapter 12. It says, The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival, which festival? The Passover, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus, it says, found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, this will sound familiar, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. It says, at first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified, did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. I think right here there might should just be like a little pause and maybe something inserted in the scripture because I just want to catch this moment here. They didn't get it. The disciples did not understand what was happening in this moment, the same way that you and I might be confused if a grown man was riding on a donkey down Rutland Avenue or a road near wherever you are. We would be confused by that, especially if we had our sights set high for a king on top of a great big horse, on top of a great big rock, if our eyes were looking in the wrong place, we might miss him. If we're looking for the warrior on a stallion, when what we have is a different kind of warrior on a donkey, a lowly, humble donkey. The disciples, they didn't understand until Jesus, it says, was wrapped up in glory. When did that happen? Easter, Easter morning, resurrection day. So that means they carried this mystery with them for a good solid week. And I wonder how many times they said to each other, you remember that donkey? Did we see a donkey? (laughs) Was that a donkey that Jesus was riding on? What was that about? The story goes on in John. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. He was surrounded by people who had witnessed a miracle that Jesus had performed. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. Again, this sign was Jesus telling Lazarus to come out of a tomb, to walk out of a place of death, to walk out of darkness and into life. This was was the sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So the reason people were in town that day was to celebrate the miracle of Passover, all those generations before. The reason people were attracted to Jesus was because they had heard that he was a miracle worker, that he could perform miracles, that he could bring dead people to life, that he had raised Lazarus out of the tomb. Do you see the direction of the miraculous movement of God? Out of slavery, out of Egypt, out of the tomb, out of the tomb for Lazarus, out of the tomb for Jesus out of death and darkness for us. I don't even know that, I didn't even know before I read this this week, I hadn't paid attention, that the Pharisees were at the scene. They were at the parade. But it's clear, it's clear that what they, that they were watching and they began to realize that there was this movement that they had lost control of. They thought that they were in charge, they had it all under control. The only question now for them was, how are we going to manipulate our way out of this? Because this guy, Jesus, is doing something that is getting people excited, that is leading people to life. So the Son of God on a little horse walking into town, to the sound of rejoicing and shouts of praise, this was actually an everyday kind of miracle. I'm not even sure how it stacks up to plagues of frogs and gnats. It was an everyday kind of miracle, but it was preparing the way for the big miracle, See, God performs little miracles to set the stage for the big miracle. So if earlier, when I asked you about miracles, if you said, you know, I can't remember the last time I saw the miraculous power of God working around me, start by looking for a little one. And like the disciples, we're just going to have to carry this mystery through this next week. Through this next week, between today and Easter Sunday, we'll be We'll be tempted to tinker with the story, to make it kind of ni- a little bit nicer, to make it kind of fit into our narrative and what makes us comfortable. We'll be tempted maybe even just to kind of fast forward to Easter, but please don't do it. In the story of Holy Week, there is loneliness and disappointment and desperation. There's, there are ears being cut off by swords and last meals and betrayals and unfair trial and a slow, agonizing death on a cross. It's not easy to walk through this week that we're about to walk through, but do not give in. Even in those stories, even in the stories of this next week, there are miracles all along the way. Even in your story, there are miracles all along the way. And they're setting you up for the big miracle of resurrection on Easter morning. See, your king comes. Your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious, Is he humble and riding on a donkey? Together, let us keep our eyes on the king.